Our scripture this morning is from Luke chapter 2, verses 1 through 20. Again, that's Luke chapter 2, verses 1 through 20. In those days, a decree went out from Caesar Augustus that all the world should be registered. This was the first registration when Quirinius was governor of Syria, and all went to be registered, each to his own town. And Joseph also went up from Galilee, from the town of Nazareth, to Judea, to the city of David, which is called Bethlehem, because he was of the house and lineage of David, to be registered with Mary, his betrothed, who was with child. And while they were there, the time came for her to give birth. And she gave birth to her firstborn son, and wrapped him in swaddling clothes, and laid him in a manger because there was no place for them in the inn. And in the same region there were shepherds out in the field, keeping watch over their flock by night. And an angel of the Lord appeared to them, and the glory of the Lord shone around them, and they were filled with fear. And the angel said to them, Fear not, for behold, I bring you good news of great joy that will be for all the people. For unto you is born this day In the city of David, a Savior, who is Christ the Lord. And this will be a sign for you. You will find a baby wrapped in swaddling clothes and lying in a manger. And suddenly there was with the angel a multitude of the heavenly host, praising God and saying, Glory to God in the highest, and on earth peace among those with whom he is pleased. And when the angels went away from them into the heaven, the shepherds said to one another, Let us go over to Bethlehem and see this thing that has happened, which the Lord has made known to us. And they went with haste, and they found Mary and Joseph and the baby lying in a manger. And when they saw it, they made known the saying that had been told them concerning this child. And all who heard it wondered at what the shepherds told them. But Mary treasured up all these things, pondering them in her heart. And the shepherds returned, glorifying and praising God for all they had heard and seen as it had been told them. May the Lord bless the reading of his holy word. Let's pray. Our Father, we thank you so much for the gift of worship that you've given us this morning. I thank you so much for the voices that led us and for the readings that caused us to think in a way that we should think. I thank you for giving Jesus Christ. I thank you for emptying yourself, Lord Jesus, and not considering God something to be grasped, but becoming a servant and being obedient all the way to death on a cross so that whosoever would believe in you would not perish but have everlasting life. Oh, I thank you, Jesus, for coming to proclaim freedom and liberty to us, not only a long time ago, but this very morning. And how I pray now that you would help me as I speak, and I pray that you would help all of us as we hear this morning. And I pray that we would receive your message of liberty and freedom in Jesus Christ today. We love you. We give you thanks in the great name of Jesus. Amen. Well, over the last few weeks, we have been meditating our way through Luke chapters 1 and 2 and thinking about the Christmas story with some care together. And for a number of reasons, this is a truly amazing story. We throw that word around quite a lot. This is amazing. That's amazing. But some things are truly amazing. And the story of Christmas is one of those things. So let me just reiterate for you six reasons why this story is truly amazing. Number one, the births of both John the Baptist and Jesus 
were foretold in some detail before Elizabeth and Mary were even born. Now if you stop to think about that for a second, I don't know of many people in the history of the world who have known details about the life and the birth of their child before they had even conceived the child. And yet this happened in this story not only once but twice. God revealed things that He was going to do before conception even happened. That is unusual. That is bordering on the miraculous. Number two, John's birth was foretold to his father Zechariah while Zechariah was in the holy place of the temple. That was a privilege that was afforded to a priest only once in his lifetime. There were about 24,000 priests in those days. And you only needed one priest per morning and one priest per evening to go in and attend to the things that were inside the holy place. And so if you just do the math, there's not enough spots there for all the priests to serve in that way. And so it was a once in a lifetime privilege that a man would get to go into the holy place and attend to the candles and attend to the bread of presence. And while Zechariah was in the holy place enjoying this once in a lifetime privilege, He saw a vision of the angel Gabriel. He saw this angel with his own eyes and he heard him speak with his own ears that he and his wife Elizabeth in their old age would conceive and bear a son and that that son would be great. Zechariah did not just have an impression from the Lord that he was going to act on their behalf. He did not read something in a book that inspired him to think that maybe God would allow them to finally conceive after all these years. No, he saw with his own eyes and he heard with his own ears the angel of the Lord. And you know as well as I do that he had a hard time believing what the angel said. And so the Lord did rebuke him and disciplined him for that. But the thing I'm trying to point out here is that the appearance of an angel is very unusual. Read the Bible back to front and you'll see there are not that many times when an angel physically, visibly manifests himself. And yet here it happens inside the holy place. And that again is bordering on the miraculous. Certainly it is amazing and certainly it is unusual. Number three, when this prophecy came to Zechariah, he said to the angel, he said, how is this going to happen because my wife is now old? I take that to mean that Elizabeth had probably gone through menopause and was past the age when she could have children. So she was physically incapable of having children, and and yet you know what happened. They obeyed the Lord, and the Lord allowed her to conceive a child in her old age. And this was a miracle. It happened by somewhat natural means, but it was a miracle granted by God through the Holy Spirit, according to the word that He had given to Zechariah in the temple. Number four, in the sixth month of Elizabeth's pregnancy, The angel Gabriel again visited a person. This time it was a young virgin in a little town called Nazareth. Her name was Mary. And Gabriel visibly appeared to her and he audibly told her, Mary, you, though you are not married and though you have never been with a man, you are going to become pregnant by the power of the Holy Spirit. So there are at least two miracles happening here. Number one is that again we see an angel appearing in such a short space. As I said, read the Bible. You'll see angels do not visibly appear very often in the course of human history. But here we see the same angel and a great angel at that appearing. Bam, bam, twice in a row. Physically, visibly, audibly appearing. 
And then secondly, the promise is that a virgin who had never been with a man would become to be with child. And that's exactly what happened by the power of the Holy Spirit. And that's more than bordering on the miraculous. That's way over the line. That is a miracle of God. It's the only time in human history that that has happened. Number five. Not too long after Mary had conceived this child, she went to visit Elizabeth, her relative, and to celebrate the things that God was doing. And when she walked into the town and her eyes met Elizabeth's before they ever spoke a word, the baby in Elizabeth's womb leaped. And the Bible says Elizabeth was filled with the Holy Spirit and she spoke these words to Mary. Blessed are you among women, and blessed is the fruit of your womb. And why is this granted to me, that the mother of my Lord should come to me? Now you have to put yourself in Mary's shoes at this point. She was a young, naive, not well-educated person. She had not walked long in the ways of the Lord. And she's looking at a woman who was old and very wise. The Bible says that, Elizabeth was righteous in the sight of God. She and her husband were pillars of faith in the community. Everybody looked up to them. And so Mary walks into the village and sees her. And without ever speaking the words to Elizabeth about what had happened to her with regard to Jesus, Elizabeth shouts these words to her. And it says that in the text. that She didn't just whisper these words. She said it with a loud voice. Why? Why has this been granted to me that the mother of my Lord should come and visit me? So the point we cannot miss here is that Elizabeth was granted knowledge of the, the reality of who uh, Mary's baby was. And this came by supernatural means. Nobody had told her the news. The Holy Spirit Himself informed Elizabeth. And this again was bordering on the miraculous. And finally, number six, there are other things we could point out, but... One more thing. Eight days after Elizabeth gave birth to her baby, she took him into the temple to be circumcised according to the law. And by the custom of the Jews, when a baby was circumcised, they named the baby at that time. And so you remember that, that the child's father, Zechariah, had been rebuked by God and he could not speak. And so rather than the leaders of the temple asking Zechariah what they should name him, they just assumed that the baby would be named after his father, and they went to name him Zechariah. But Elizabeth stopped them and said, No, his name is not to be Zechariah. His name is to be John. Now this was very unusual because the custom in their day was to prolong one's heritage and to name your children after people who had been a part of your family or at least significant in the life of Israel. And these leaders in the temple are looking around and thinking and saying, Who's John? Who is John? Why should you name your son John? And so before conferring this name upon him, which was a legal issue in their day, they decided to somehow consult with Zechariah. He could not speak, and so they got him a writing tablet, and he simply wrote these words, His name is John. And the moment he finished writing the sentence, after nine months of silence, God opened his mouth, and he was able to speak, and he spoke one of the most powerful prophecies in all of the New Testament. You can read it there at the end of Luke chapter 1. He talked about His Son. He talked about Jesus Christ. He talked about the great mercy of God that Pastor Kevin led us to meditate on last week. And the end result of this was that the people who heard it and saw with their eyes what happened, the fear of God came upon them because they knew God was at work. 
and the news of these things spread throughout this whole region. So, if you took any one of these things in isolation, this story would be amazing, just with one of these things. But when you, get, when you begin piling these things up, and there are many more that we could have added, you begin to see that God is stirring and moving and doing something great in human history like He had never done before. Beloved, this story is truly amazing. It is the most amazing story in all of human history. And I think God, in revealing what He has in our Bibles, is trying to shout to us this fact. The facts that have been preserved there for us were not preserved by accident. They were preserved to help us recognize the miraculous, once for all, amazing nature of what God was doing in this brief, brief time of history. Now, we come to Luke chapter 2. Luke says, in those days, by which I think he means in the very days when all of these other things were taking place. Another miracle came to pass, though I don't think in those days that people would have seen it as a miracle, and probably not a lot of us today recognize this as a miracle of God, but I think it was. Luke says at the beginning of his chapter again, that in those very days, when all of these things were taking place, the most powerful human being in all of the world, his name was Caesar Augustus, he decided to take a census of his kingdom, which was a vast kingdom. It did not span the entire world, but it was pretty close. It was a vast kingdom, and for whatever reason, he decided to take a census. And so he sent out a decree commanding everybody to return to their cities of origin and to be registered for the census. In our day, when the government takes a census, which they'll be doing next year, they come to us and they count us. But in their day, that's not how it happened. In their day, they required all the peoples of the world to pick up, to stop what they were doing, to pack their things and travel back to the cities where their family came from to be registered. And so the whole entire world basically stopped what it was doing and traveled to their cities of origin. Now, we don't know what motivated Caesar to call the census. We do know that it actually happened in history. There are there are sources outside the Bible that confirm that Caesar did in fact call this census to occur at this particular time in history. But we don't know why he called for it because he left us no record of the fact. But what we do know is this. That behind the hand of Caesar is the hand of Almighty God. The Bible says that the heart of a king is just like a river in the hand of God. He causes it to flow any way that he wishes it to flow. God is the one who's in absolute control of every king on the earth, including Caesar Augustus. And so I know for a fact that God was ultimately the one behind this census that was taken. And so I've been questioning all week long. I've been asking the Lord, why? Lord, why was it that you, number one, had this census to be taken? Why was it that you caused all the peoples of the world, almost all of the peoples, to rise up and return to their cities of origin right at this particular moment in history? And why did you preserve it for us in the Bible? Why did you cause Luke to write about this? Why do you want us to think about this? So one answer I could give to those questions is this. We could say that God caused the census to take place so that Joseph and Mary would travel from the city of Nazareth, which was up in the northern part of Israel, down to the city of Bethlehem, which was in the southern part of Israel, so that they could fulfill biblical prophecy. 
We've already heard a little bit from Micah chapter 2, but if you want to look up here with me, let me read for you Micah chapter 5, I mean, verses 2 through 4. But you, O Bethlehem, Ephratah, you who are too little to be among the clans of Judah, from you shall come forth for me one who is to be ruler in Israel, whose coming forth is from of old, from ancient days. Therefore he shall give them up until the time when she who is in labor has given birth. Then the rest of his brothers shall return to the people of Israel, and he shall stand and shepherd his flock in the strength of the Lord, in the majesty of the name of the Lord his God. And they shall dwell secure, for now he shall be be great to the ends of the earth. So beloved, this prophecy was spoken over 700 years before Jesus Christ came, and it says very clearly that he'll be born in Bethlehem. But this presents a problem. Because in fact, the family that God chose to to bear Jesus lived in Nazareth, which is a long way from Bethlehem. So somehow or other, God had to get these people from Nazareth down to Bethlehem just when the child was to be born so that the prophecy could be filled. And so one thing you, one explanation you could offer is to say that God called for this worldwide census in order to move one family from here to there. That's a possibility. But I must admit that having thought about it at some length, it's not a very satisfying possibility to me. And here's why. If all God needed to do was move one family from one place to another, seems to me like He could have found a host of ways to do that that would have been a lot easier than calling for a worldwide census, right? He could have found a way to get a family from here to there without upsetting the entire world. God is powerful. He could have caused Joseph and Mary to be born in Bethlehem, to raise their family in Bethlehem, to have already lived in Bethlehem, then they wouldn't have had to move at all. God could have caused some event to happen in their family that drew them from this city down to that city, even though Mary was already very pregnant. He could have done that. God could have caused some kind of social custom to take place right at that time so that they would have been in Bethlehem. He could have given them a dream like He did to Joseph, which we read about in the book of Matthew. He could have spoken to him in a dream and said, Joseph, you need to go from this city to that city precisely at this time. Or He could have appeared to them in the form of an angel of the Lord again and spoken to them. And given their track record, I have no doubt that if God would have spoken to them like that, they would have listened and they would have gone from Nazareth to Bethlehem. They didn't need to be forced by the government, in other words, to go from one place to another. They were obedient people. They would have listened to the Lord. So at the end of the day, it's not really satisfying to me to think that the reason God called for the census was simply to move Mary and Joseph from one city to another. And so, what's up here? What is God up to? Why did He call almost all the peoples of the world to upset the apple cart, so to speak, and return to their places of origin? Well, yesterday morning I was meditating on this one more time, and the Lord opened my eyes to see something that really did take my breath away, and so I spent most of my day thinking that through, And I want to lay that out before you now, and I pray that God would grant me the mercy to open your eyes to what He had opened my eyes to, because it's really sort of made my Christmas season. It's really blessed my life quite a bit. So let me begin by just stating the insight that I have, and then I'll take a a little while and explain what I mean. Here's the insight. I believe that God caused this nearly worldwide census to occur, that He caused the peoples of Europe and Africa and the Middle East, 
and even Asia as far as western China to return, to rise up and return to their places of origin as a massive sign of what was just about to take place in Jesus Christ, namely the return of all things back to unity. The return of all things back to their places of origin. So let me take some time now to explain what I mean. When God first created the world, there was perfect harmony between God and humanity. There was no discord whatsoever. And at this time, there was perfect harmony between the two human beings that existed at that time, Adam and Eve. I was thinking about this yesterday and it occurred to me that before sin entered the world, Adam and Eve never had an argument. Adam and Eve... They may have had to discuss things, but they never had a massive disagreement about anything. They were, they were in harmony with one another. They were in harmony with God. Whatever they put their hands to, there was unity there. There was harmony. There was peace. There was love. There was joy in their lives. But when sin entered the world, disunity entered the world. When both Adam and Eve chose to disobey a direct commandment of God and to rebel against God a almost hopeless brokenness entered into the relationship between humanity and God and between human beings and other human beings. At first, they hid themselves from God when they sinned against Him. You remember that? They ate of the tree and then when they realized what they had done, they tried to hide in the garden. This was a symbol of the brokenness between them and God. This is what sin does. Whenever a person sins, their instinct is now to hide from God. If you in your life right now are seeking to hide from God, it's because of your sin. This is the result of sin. And not only that, but they noticed, oh wow, we're naked, we've got to put clothes on each other, on, on ourselves. What was that about? It was essentially about hiding from one another. Before there was perfect communication, there was perfect peace, there was harmony, there was no need to hide, and now they had to hide from one another. Sin had introduced disunity, discord into the human family. And as Adam and Eve had children, and then their children had children, and so on and so forth, this disunity spread throughout the earth to the extent that God even confused our languages so we couldn't communicate with each other, and He dispersed us around the world. That's a really important point to get. Please make sure you track with this point. Our early ancestors on the earth didn't just spread throughout the earth because they were exploring. That's not what happened. What happened was God Himself dispersed them over the face of the earth as a symbol of the disunity that had entered into humanity. Sin broke relationships. It broke the relationship between humanity and God and between humanity and one another. And now the singular mark of humanity was discord, disunity, disharmony. Harmony. In fact, it's that way to this day. Just this week, most of the world's leaders met in Copenhagen and I listened to some of the audio of what they were talking about. And I listened as in various languages... They pointed fingers at one another and blamed one another for this and for that, arguing with one another. No unity among the most powerful, influential people in the world. Why? Because sin has entered the world. And because of sin, there's brokenness, there's disharmony, there's disunity. This is what characterizes our world to this day. Now, God, in the face of this sin, in the face of such disunity, had every right to wipe us off the face of the earth. 
He is a holy God. He is a righteous God. He is a just God. He is an all-powerful God. And He would not have been at fault if He simply wiped us off the face of the earth. But thanks be to His name, He's also filled with mercy. Amen? One of the first times He revealed Himself to Moses, He said to Moses, He said, I am the Lord, the Lord, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. I am slow to get angry and I am faithful, faithful, faithful to carry out my covenants and to be merciful and loving and kind. This is the best news that we could imagine. And so because God is rich in mercy, as it says in Ephesians 2.4, He devised a plan to save us from our sin. He devised a plan to heal the disunity that had come into the human family. And the truth of the matter is that this wasn't a new thing for him. He had thought up this plan before the foundation of the world. He knew that sin would enter the world. And he devised a plan to have his mercy overcome that sin. One of the fundamental building blocks of his plan was to choose one people out of all the peoples that had scattered around the world and to use that people to deliver salvation for all the peoples of the world. So let me say that again. Fundamental to his plan was the choosing of one people through whom he would work salvation and redemption for all the peoples of the world. And you know that the people he chose was the people of Israel. The reason He chose them was not because they were great and mighty, but because God was faithful to His word to Abraham. Let me read for you from Deuteronomy chapter 7, verses 6 to 10. For you are a people holy to the Lord your God. The Lord your God has chosen you to be a people for His treasured possession out of all the peoples who are on the face of the earth. It was not because you were more in number than any other people that the Lord set His love on you and chose you, For you were the fewest of all people. But it is because the Lord loves you and is keeping His oath that He swore to your fathers that the Lord has brought you out with a mighty hand and redeemed you from the house of slavery, from the hand of Pharaoh, king of Egypt. Know therefore that the Lord your God is God, the faithful God who keeps covenant and steadfast love with those who love Him and keep His commandment to a thousand generations and repays to their face those who hate Him by destroying them. He will not be slack with the one who hates Him. He will repay Him to His face. So, God chose for Himself a people out of all the peoples of the earth, Israel, through whom He would work out salvation for all the peoples of the earth. And as part of His plan of doing that, He gave something very important to His people, and that is called the law. The law of Israel is contained in the first five books of the Bible, and it is an amazing gift from God. It is a crucial piece of His plan of redemption for humanity. One of the things He commanded in that law is particularly important for understanding Luke chapter 2 and what happened with the census. In Leviticus chapter 25, God commanded His people to practice something that He called the year of jubilee which is to say the year of freedom or the year of liberty. The year of Jubilee was to take place every 50 years. And in the year of Jubilee, everything in the culture of Israel was to be put back into its proper place. 
People were to move back to where their clans had come from and stay there. People were to return lands that they had acquired to the original owners of those lands. Money was to be redistributed. Possessions were to be redistributed. The idea here was that because sin had entered the culture, the culture was all in disarray and in disorder. But every 50th year, God commanded, let us set the culture back in order. Let us wipe the slate clean every 50th year and start all over again. This was a gracious act from God. I'm giving you another chance, people. In 50 years, you've messed everything up. And I'm saying, let's return back to the beginning. Let me be gracious to you. Let me be redemptive to you again. The year of Jubilee was a symbol of the reordering of the brokenness of sin. It was a sign of the graciousness of God. Let me read for you just a few verses from Leviticus 25, and you'll get a feel of what this day was all about. And this will be up here as well. You shall count seven weeks of years, seven times seven years, so that the time of seven weeks of years shall give you forty-nine years. Then you shall sound a loud trumpet on the tenth day of the seventh month. On the day of atonement you shall sound the trumpet throughout all your land. And you shall consecrate the fiftieth year and proclaim liberty throughout all the land to its inhabitants. It shall be a jubilee for you when each of you shall return to his property and each of you shall return to his clan. That's key. Each of you return to his property. Each of you return to his clan. That fiftieth year shall be a jubilee for you. In it you shall neither sow nor reap what grows of itself nor gather the grapes from, under, from the undressed vines. For it is a jubilee. It shall be holy to you. You may eat the produce of the field. And then God goes on to promise them that in the 49th year, He'll give them such an abundant harvest that they'll have enough food for the whole entire year. Please notice with me the connection here between the Day of Atonement and the year of Jubilee. When the Israelites got to the 50th year, they were not to proclaim the day of the year of Jubilee at just any old time that they were in the mood to do it or when it worked out for them. They were to proclaim it at a particular time on a particular day. And that day was the Day of Atonement. The Day of Atonement or what Jews call Yom Kippur. It happens once a year. And it is the day when the high priest goes into the most holy place, the Holy of Holies, where man was only allowed to enter once per year and made the sacrifice that covered the sins of the people of God. And so on this day of atonement, God healed the sins of His people, reconciled them back to Him, and every 50th day of atonement, He said, blow the trumpet and declare a year of jubilee and set right everything in your culture. The idea is this, because the sacrifice for sins has come, and I have made a way to atone for what you have done, now let's work out the consequences of that forgiveness and set our relationships back in order. Let there be unity again where there once was disunity on the basis of the sacrifice that I have made. That's the year of Jubilee. Now let's bring this back to Jesus Christ and think about this with regard to what God was up to in the census. It is without question that God means for us to connect the idea of Jubilee with the life of Jesus Christ. And the reason I say that so confidently is because of what 
the Lord had Luke write in chapter 4. In Luke chapter 4, Jesus goes into a time of temptation. It's more intense probably than any of us could ever imagine. You think you've been tempted, you know nothing compared to what Jesus went through in those 40 days. I know nothing compared to what He went through in those 40 days. They were a hard, grueling 40 days, but praise God, He stood the test, He stayed faithful to God, He comes out from the desert, full of the Holy Spirit, the Bible says. And one of the first things He does is He goes back to the city where He grew up, to Nazareth. And He goes into the synagogue there. And when the time is right, He gets up from the crowd, He walks to the front, so everybody's watching Him. He grabs the scroll, they would have been big scrolls, about like so, things where you would turn. Actually, they, they uh, Hebrews go from right to left, so they would have turned the scroll this way. He opens up the scroll to the book of Isaiah, to chapter 61, verses 1 and 2, and he reads these words. The Spirit of the Lord is upon me because He has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives and recovering of sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. Beloved, that is the language of the year of Jubilee. To proclaim liberty. To set at liberty. To proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. He is deliberately using the language of Jubilee and identifying Himself with that. He is saying, I am the freedom of God. I am the Jubilee of God. I am the fulfillment of the 50th year. So believe in Me. God Almighty sent His only begotten Son, Jesus Christ, into the world to be our jubilee, to be our freedom from sin, to set things in our lives back to where they belong. And not only in our lives, but in the entire world. And all we have to do to enter into this freedom of God is simply believe in Him. Believe that He has sent His Son to die for our sins and that He raised Him from the dead for our justification before God. The Bible says this, can't get any simpler. For God so loved the world. Remember, He could have been angry, but this is our God. God so loved this world that was rebelling against Him that He gave His only begotten Son, that whoever believes in Him would not perish, but have everlasting life, would have jubilee. And He said again in Romans 10, chapter 10, verse 9, If you confess with your mouth that Jesus Christ is Lord, and believe in your heart that God has raised Him from the dead, you shall be saved. You shall be rescued from the consequences of your sin. You shall experience the jubilee of God in Christ and see Him unify things in your life again. One piece at a time. One step at a time. But reversing the curse that sin had brought. Now, as for the census, what I'm asserting this morning is that the worldwide movement of peoples back to their places of origin was a massive symbol from God of what He was about to do in the world through Jesus Christ. And the reason I think God called for a census, not just in Israel, but the whole entire world, was because this proclamation of Jubilee, for the first time in history, 
was for all the peoples and not just Israel. Every year of Jubilee before Jesus Christ was only for Israel. Now in Jesus Christ, the whole entire world was being called to stand up, to take attention, and to be put back into its proper place. And this is what God is up to in the world. He is reordering all things according to His kingdom. Right now, you look at the world and you think after 2,000 years, it doesn't look very orderly to me. But believe me, God in Christ is setting all things back in place. One example is just coming to my mind right now. Last Wednesday night, we stood right over in this area with a man from China. A pastor there who has undergone great persecution for Christ there. His culture is extremely different from ours. Thank God he could speak English so we could communicate. After he spoke here, he and I went to the Denny's in Otsego with Kim and a couple of others. And we talked with him for about another two hours after he presented his thing to us that night. And we just rejoiced in Christ together. We shared in Christ together. And I have to tell you, the more we talked, the more I felt like this brother was not a stranger from the other side of the world. I felt like I'd known him forever. Why? Because he's worshiping the same Jesus I'm worshiping. And God has unified me with him because of the year of Jubilee. Because of the year of the Lord's favor. The Lord, through Christ, is unifying what sin has destroyed. And so indeed, when God called for this census, He didn't need to get Joseph and Mary from one place to another, but He was up to things much greater than that. He was proclaiming to the entire world, Your Jubilee has come. Only belief. Only belief. And so, that is what He's up to in the world today. See a lot of things happening in the world, but what God is up to today is still proclaiming the year of Jubilee. The Bible says that the day of God's favor will come to an end. There will be a day when His mercy is no longer offered, and sinners who have rejected Him will pay the price for that. And it will be a heavy price. But today is the year of the Lord's favor, and He's still proclaiming liberty to the captives. Twenty-three years ago, that message of liberty came to me. I had been a hopeless drug addict from the time I was 11 years old. I was a full-blown drug addict by the time I was 13, at least. Left home at 14 years old. I went through a lot of things in my life. But praise God, by His grace, He sent people to me to tell me about Jesus Christ. On October 26, 1986, I threw my drugs down the toilet and I followed Jesus Christ. And I entered into His jubilee, into His freedom. And believe me, there's a lot in this life that still needs to be put in order. But He's been doing a great work in me ever since. He's been putting my life back together for the glory of His name. Before I knew Christ, I gave myself to almost every pleasure this world affords. And you know what it got me? It got me a ruined life is what it got me. I was truly hopeless in 1986 when I met Jesus. I mean hopeless. I wanted to commit suicide, but I didn't have the guts to do it, was the bottom line. But in Jesus Christ, I found freedom. He came and proclaimed liberty to this captive, and He set me free. And He can do that for you too. He can do it for you. All you have to do is believe. I don't care what you've done in your life. His grace is greater than your sin. Just believe in Him. Come into the jubilee, the freedom of God this morning. It's alive and well. It's living. This world has nothing to offer you. Ask a guy like Bernie Madoff. He had everything the world afforded. And where did it get him? It got him in in prison. Got him in prison. 
This world has nothing for you. Christ has everything for you. So believe. If you, like me, have already come to the place where you've believed and entered into the jubilee of Jesus, I just want to encourage your souls as God has encouraged my soul to keep pressing into Christ. To keep receiving the message of freedom and jubilee from Jesus. I'll bet that like me, there's parts of your life that are in disarray. They're in disorder and you know it. You know that there are parts of your life where Jesus is lovingly saying, let me go in there and straighten it up. Let me go in there and put things back in their proper place. I just want to encourage you as I have been encouraging my own soul, let Him do it. Let Him do it. He just wants your freedom. He just wants your happiness. So let the jubilee of the Lord continue to reorder, to reorganize your life, to bring it in to conformity with God. Because at the end of the day, what's at stake is this good news of great joy that the angel spoke to the shepherds about. Beloved, I do really pray that this Christmas season, that you enjoy the giving and taking of gifts, that you enjoy the food, that you enjoy family fellowship. I really do pray that. Kim and I are celebrating uh, Christmas today, in fact, with one side of our family. And I will be looking for joy in those things. But in and through and above them all, I pray that the jubilee of Christ would be ringing in your ears. I pray that the freedom Christ affords would be the thing that really excites your heart and really gets you to love this particular Christmas season. Let's pray. Our Father, how I thank You that You are a God of grace and mercy, that You are slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. Oh, Lord, as the psalmist said, if You counted our sins against us, who could possibly stand? There's not a single human being that's ever lived that could stand before You if You were gracious. All of us have sinned. All of us have gone astray. Each of us has gone his own way. And we need you, Jesus. And so I thank you so much for being gracious and coming and providing the sacrifice that would cover our sins and for inviting us into your freedom. And how I pray this morning, Father, that everyone who's heard that message this morning, how I pray that they would make a choice right now to enter into the kingdom of God and into the freedom of Jesus Christ. I thank you for what you've done for me and I thank you for what you will do for us all to the glory of your name. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.